and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On the 29th of April, 1770, two men attempted to stop the disembarkation of a group of strange and unwelcome visitors on a beach in what came to be known as Botany Bay in Australia. The interlopers were led by Captain James Cook of the British Royal Navy, and they were the first Europeans to make landfall in Eastern Australia. This incident had huge ramifications, not just for the native Australians, but also for people 10,000 miles away from Britain. With this so-called bloody code in force, Britons could face the death penalty for over 200 offences. But the government lacked the infrastructure, and the public lacked the appetite for execution on an industrial scale. Australia then provided a new avenue for the punishment of criminals. In this episode, I discuss penal transportation with historian Brad Minera, senior historian and curator of the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, Sydney. He co-authored Australia's submission to UNESCO, which resulted in 11 penal transportation locations being listed as World Heritage Sites. I began our conversation by asking Brad to explain the origin of these colonies. There was already a tradition among European powers of transporting convicts for economic reasons. The first British convicts transported had been transported to the American colonies. But of course, after the revolution in America that ended in 1783, the Americans said, we are not accepting any more British convicts. So what do you do with these people? And, uh, you know, the labour gangs were stuck on floating accommodation. British warships that had served out their time, they chopped the masts off and they refer to them as hulks. And they had a series of hulks on the Thames in Britain packed full of these convicts. The hulks provided overnight accommodation and then they'd be taken on shore to work on docks or similar infrastructure that was close by. But the numbers kept building. And so Britain's going, what do we do with these people? We don't want to start building penitentiaries and we know how useful British subjects can be in building the empire. Mad King George, King George III, is still mourning the loss of the American colonies, so he's looking to rebuild his empire. The British East India Company is finding great commercial benefit in expanding their holdings in India. British holdings in the Caribbean are increasing. The slave trade is is still in existence. They attempt to send convicts to West Africa, but they tend to die fairly quickly. And then you've got this situation where Cook, he has written a glowing report about this new continent in the South Pacific. And great advocate of that is a very influential fellow named Joseph Banks. And Banks is recommending an expansion of the British Empire in the South Pacific. And what better way to do it than sending convicts to build up a settlement? And the British government finally acts on that in 1787. They put together a fleet of 
convicts guarded by Marines and commanded by a fairly junior naval officer, Captain Arthur Phillip, who has experience in the area because Phillip had been under contract to the Portuguese government to transport Portuguese convicts to Brazil to set up settlements there. And so he was given charge of the entire enterprise. And so he commanded this fleet of of ships that left Britain in 1787 and slowly travelled through the Atlantic across the Indian Ocean to Botany Bay on the east coast of Australia with this cargo of convicts to set up a settlement. Because he arrived in Botany Bay using Cook's maps, found that A, it was miserable, miserable country, most unsuitable for a settlement. Of course, he arrives in the final weeks of January where it's brutally hot. There's no fresh water, the soil is sandy, the bay is wide and very flat, and so not suitable for long-term anchorage of ships. And, of course, the French arrive within minutes. And so suddenly he realises that this location, Botany Bay, is known internationally and that he doesn't want to be seen to be setting up a colony that could be at risk of attack by a foreign power that's potentially unfriendly. He sends teams out from Botany Bay to explore the coast and because much of eastern Australia can be a, a lee shore, it's, it's a very threatening shore, cliffs, little bays. Cook saw the, the opening to a bay, but he wasn't able to explore it because of the uh, potential for getting washed in against the cliffs. And so he missed the opportunity to discover Port Jackson, one of the world's finest harbours. But because Philip is desperate, because he's only got enough rations for a one-way trip, there's no plan B with the uh, the establishment of the convict colony in New South Wales. He, he only carries enough supplies to get to Australia, there's no turn around and come back option for him. So he's got to make it happen there. And he sends a team of surveyors and they some head south, but most importantly, one team heads north and they find cliffs, a very, very forbidding coastline, but then they find the entrance to Sydney Harbour. And of course, as soon as they sail in, they realise that it's one of the world's finest harbours. It's surrounded by high country, which makes sheltered anchorage. And within 10 or 11 kilometres of the harbour, entrance they find permanent fresh water it's just the perfect location they then relocate the fleet into sydney harbour and that's where they they set up a settlement the situation is they're pretty desperate they've got to get uh, accommodation set up and they've got to get a crop in immediately there's no distinction between soldiers and convicts they're all working to survive it's a desperate attempt for all of them to work together to survive. Many of the hangings were as a result of stealing food and convicts and soldiers were equally subject to the laws as described by Arthur Phillip. So uh, those first desperate decades around Sydney Harbour, it was a pretty egalitarian society. It, It wasn't until really the early decades of the 19th century that there starts to be enough people and the colony has established itself well enough for there to be a real distinction between the settler populations of soldiers, because by this stage the Marines have been replaced by a home regiment called the New South Wales Corps and the convict population. With regards to building the colony in the early days, I'd read that the British were trying to send fit and healthy people, but they had issues with the hulks in London that were in such atrocious conditions. 
sick people would try and pass themselves off as fit just to go to Australia instead. And the jailers would try to shove off sick people as being healthy because they didn't want disease in the prison hulks. Was that a significant issue? Well, the situation on the hulks were that they were they were packed in together. So you can imagine any sense of a contagion, any disease is going to rip through that population very, very quickly. And of course, these people are getting off the hulks to work on public infrastructure projects. So if they've got a disease and they're getting off to work on the, on the shoreline and the port of London, then that disease is going to spread. So depopulating the hulks was a big priority. And surgeons were expensive. So the amount of medical supervision received was pretty minimal but you're right the colony wanted as many fit people as possible but there is always going to be debate over just how fit some people were there were issues about people desperate to just get out of the hulks although there was a real fear that going to Australia was a step into the unknown and so there were people who were absconding from one set of hulks or being put on a transport bound for Botany Bay and escaping from that transport to get on a transport that was going to Africa. So, you know, they're, and they find themselves sort of dead from something horrible in West Africa fairly quickly. Australia was a very much a great unknown, but you're absolutely right in that by the sort of second decade of the 19th century, stories about life of a convict in New South Wales and to a lesser extent in Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, were filtering back to Britain and it seemed like it was a good life. You had the opportunity to make a bit of money for yourself. Uh, When you got your ticket of leave, there was the possibility of a land grant. And so people were talking about the opportunity to commit a crime with the aim of being transported. And so in 1819 and 1820, the British authorities the Home Office in London launched an inquiry into convict transportation conducted by an inquirer named John Thomas Big. And Big's aim was to look at convict transportation and whether it was a deterrent for criminal activity. And he came to New South Wales and clearly he had a very strong bias. Right from the very start, his aim was to discredit this idea of convict transportation as it occurred in Australia at that time. And his report changed the entire complexion of convict transportation. He insisted that changes be made so that convict transportation to the Australian colonies becomes a thing of terror. And one of the consequences of the big report was more gang labour, that is, people living in convict barracks, often working in leg irons, working under very strict supervision, and also the creation of what we now know as penal stations. These were people who had been convicted of very serious crimes or had been doubly convicted once they had arrived in the colony of New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land. And these people are being sent to these penal stations and they include places like Moreton Bay in what is now Queensland, to the Coal River, which is now Newcastle on the coast of New South Wales, to Port Arthur or Macquarie Harbour in Van Diemen's Land, and to Norfolk Island. Norfolk Island had been part of the original convict settlement to try and take pressure off the starving convict settlement at Port Jackson. It had been shut down in 1814. Well, in 1825, 
it was re-established as a penal station for the worst of the worst. And it was in those places that most of our modern perceptions of convict history are formed because they, you know, there are floggings, there are frequent hanging, you know, total sound and light deprivation. There are experiments with Bentham's separate prisons or the SIPD, the Society for the Improvement of, of Prison Discipline. All of these sorts of things, Australia becomes a laboratory because by this stage, of course, the convict population has exploded. After 1815, you've got this situation where convicts or those who have committed criminal acts in Britain are no longer being sent straight to the army or the navy to fight Napoleon because after 1815 with the defeat of Britain's enemies at Waterloo, the sending convicts to the army or navy is no longer necessary. They start to clog the hulks again. A demand for penitentiaries in Britain rears its head again and so convict transportation to Australia just explodes after 1815 and the convict population triples within a decade and that's really the period that we think about most mm -hmm. when we imagine convict transportation to the Australian colonies this this massive convict population when you look take a broad brush look at the period of convict transportation to the Australian colonies it occurred over 80 years from 1788 to 1868 and 40% of convicts went into a situation where they were incarcerated or involved in government-controlled gang labour. 60%, that is the vast majority of convicts transported to Australia, were assigned on arrival. They were sent to work as farm labourers or that they were sent as labourers to help retail outlets, that sort of thing, you know, small industry around the growing colonies. The sort of stereotypical convict experience isn't that common. So the people being transported who didn't live in local communities ended up in places like Hyde Park Barracks in Sydney. You actually helped that site to become established as a World Heritage location. Tell me a little bit about the function of Hyde Park Barracks. Hyde Park Barracks was set up as a labour camp. It was established so that convicts who were not going to be assigned had somewhere to stay and be administered and then go out to form farming gangs or construction gangs in the growing city of Sydney. If a convict ship sailed into Sydney Harbour, the convicts would be taken off that ship and be marched up to the barracks and it was then up to local landowners to say, look, I need a carpenter or I need a blacksmith or I would like uh, gardeners or ploughmen or shepherds and they would go through the list of convicts arriving on that ship and as many as they possibly could would be sent to those landowners or business owners who had applied for assigned convicts. The rest would end up in gang labour at the governor's pleasure, but they would be staying at Hyde Park and they would go out daily on work assignments as a gang and they would build roads or bridges or assimilate yeah, government infrastructure within the town. So prior to that, of course, convicts that were in the cities would work for half a day for the government and the other half of the day would earn enough for them to sort of get a group house or something, mm -hmm. you know, like that, I guess, that putting it into 21st century parlance, but they would have to then work for themselves for the other portion of the day to earn enough to keep themselves alive. The Hyde Park Barracks was a way of introducing system 
into the convict experience. Prior to that, it was a, a much, much less structured society. The Hyde Park barracks and similar convict barracks around Australia introduced a level of system. Picking up again on something else you were saying, a lot of the people ended up staying because they got land grants and things like that. And I presume too, a lot of people probably didn't have the means to get back. And I was just wondering how difficult it was to get back would they have had communication with back home i mean do you know if your wife's still alive do you have a way to get money from back home to australia or are you just kind of completely out on your own and have to try and figure out if you want to get back a number of convicts did return to britain having made money in the colonies but you had to get a complete free pardon most convicts served their seven years and then got a, a ticket of leave, which meant that they were essentially free but had to report to the, you know, the local authorities. After that, you then got a conditional pardon and the condition on that pardon was you did not return to Britain. If you did that, you were breaking the conditional pardon and would be re-transported. However, if you got a complete certificate of freedom, then it was up to you. If you could raise enough money, then you could go home to, free, uh, to Britain. You had done your time. It it wasn't easy, but it was possible to transfer funds all around the British Empire. Thinking about the length of time it took ships to go to and from England at that period, was there any kind of system in place for people to communicate with relatives back home, or was that something that was even allowed? Yes, you could write home. That was very permissible. The problem was that it took a long time. A standard trip to Australia took about four months. So, you know, if uh, the, the letter that you were receiving was four months old, and then if you wrote in reply and posted it on the next return ship, it would take another four months. So, you know, essentially any correspondence is taking up to a year to go backwards and forwards. No correspondence is happening in real time. This is one of the reasons that conversations were involved in the building of fortifications around Australia because the British Empire might be at war with somebody and the colony of Australia wouldn't know about it for several months. And so there was a real concern that any foreign ship coming through the heads had the potential to be an enemy because there was this four-month delay. And if you're expecting a, a return correspondence, then it's an eight to ten-month delay. So you really have no idea if France show up if they're at war with you, if things are still peaceful, basically. Yeah, That's correct. That's crazy. So then by, I think it was 1840 in Eastern Australia, they stopped accepting convicts. Was that because the people there didn't like the idea of having convicts around or was it because a lot of people there were the descendants of convicts who found the whole thing abhorrent? I mean, what was the driving force with that? There's a whole range of reasons. Uh, society back in Britain is changing. In the early 19th century, Britain had banned slavery. By the 1820s, Britain had the Catholic Emancipation Act. You know, there are a whole range of social reformers becoming involved. By this stage, literacy levels are, are on the increase and people are realising that convict transportation can be a lottery. It can be very, very brutal and indeed people can really genuinely suffer. And so they're just sort of thinking about, is it really wise? And, and of course, Britain's starting to say, well, 
could these people be made better use of back home in Britain? Van Diemen's Land is looking to become a self-governing colony, calling itself Tasmania, and so they're saying we don't want any more convicts. But then you've got the anomaly is Western Australia, where the colony is struggling, it's nearly starving, it looks like it's about to become a failed enterprise within the British Empire. The colony actually requests convicts because if convicts arrive there's a whole world of government expenditure that goes with them the sending of garrison troops the expenditure on infrastructure and so the colony of western australia in 1850 actually requests transported convicts from Britain. And Britain agrees. Indeed, Britain was going to send convicts to Western Australia anyway. So the the letter going back to Britain from WA to Britain actually passed the the first transport bringing convicts to Western Australia. So, uh, you know, sort of a, a black comedy, if you like. So Western Australia took British convicts until 1868. That rounded off the, uh, the, the full 80 years of transportation. Making general statements about the transportation of convicts to the Australian colonies is extremely difficult because it's not happening in isolation. The world is changing and that's really influencing whether or not these colonies want convicts. And of course, the big change in the eastern colonies by 1850 is the discovery of gold. They don't need convicts because they're wealthy enough in their own right through generating gold and and two they don't want people around who are inclined to criminal activity when you've got something as valuable as gold being discovered so the initial colony was established with men both marines and convicts but over time britain wanted to populate australia which meant they needed to have women there with a majority 80% or so convicts being men what was the experience like for the 20% of people who were women coming to Australia I think you know you're absolutely right to identify transported females as a separate category because as you've already mentioned there are fewer of them than there are transported males for a range of reasons I think courts might have been more sympathetic to women also that women were probably uh, had a less dominant role in society as a rule anyway it was a very uh, society in, in Britain indeed around most of Europe was divided along sex lines men are more likely to have been in the spotlight when it comes to criminal activity. But nevertheless, obviously, there were women who were in a very desperate situation. And and many homeless women in Britain or women that were down on their luck were often accused of being prostitutes. And, you know, prostitution is a common, common cause for transportation. And, you know, in many cases, these girls may not have been prostitutes at all, but just desperate and, and homeless. But Of course, on arrival in the colony, by the time that they are arriving in large numbers, the colony has created its own social structure and there are people with enough expendable income to want housekeepers, housemaids, nannies for their children, all of these sorts of things. And so women become a very desirable commodity within the community. So very few, proportionally very few women are actually incarcerated in large custodial institutions. They refer to them in the colonies as female factories. uh, And female factories tend to be populated by women under secondary punishment. Most women on arrival are snapped up by the local community, either as domestic servants or indeed as as bed partners and, and in many cases wives. 
Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com. Fascinating people, fascinating places. The weekly podcast available on all major platforms. I definitely knew I was going to be an astronaut. That coronavirus is a work of God. There's a huge conspiracy at work. There were a number of spies. It straddles fantasy and reality. It ain't so funny once the rabbit got the gun. Uh, you're, you're not a Christian.